morning. I'm Steve Handelman. I'm director of the Center on Media, Crime and Justice, and I want to welcome you all to the seventh annual John J. Harry Frank Guggenheim Conference and Symposium on Crime in America. We've got a great full house today in our new building. And without further ado, I wanted to bring up the president of the college, Jeremy Travis, to start our proceedings and welcome you all officially. And then we'll begin after that. President Travis. So good morning, everybody. And uh, welcome uh, to John Jay College of Criminal Justice. It's uh, great uh, to see all of you here, and uh, in particular to see uh, this nice mix of people who have been here before to the Guggenheim, uh, and, uh, but a special welcome uh, to our uh, Guggenheim fellows, the journalists who are here for the first time. Uh, we're delighted to have uh, this gathering every year of uh, experts, uh, practitioners, academics, uh, and journalists on the important issues of, of crime uh, in our country. Uh, as Steve said, this is now the seventh year that we've hosted the uh, Harry Frank Guggenheim uh, Symposium uh, here at John Jay, and I um, note every year that it gets uh, better, richer, deeper, uh, more sophisticated uh, each year, uh, and uh, has become in many ways a, an important event on the annual calendar for people who think about crime and justice. And uh, Pat Caruso, wherever she is, uh, said, there she is, said, I've been invited all these years, never been able to make it. Uh, finally, I'm here. Uh, and it's nice to have that sort of feeling that this is a, a, a uh, sort of destination spot uh, on the calendar. Uh, the history of the Guggenheim Fellowship, uh, I'm sorry, the Guggenheim uh, Symposium is a wonderful New York story. Uh, as so often happens, this one was born over a lunch uh, between me and uh, Joel Wallman. Uh, Joel had been uh, and is one of the uh, uh, key figures at the Harry Frank Guggenheim Foundation, but in our world is known also as a serious academic on crime policy and co-edited with Al Bloomstein, uh, one of the first important books on trying to understand the crime decline in America. So Joel and I were talking about how to sort of keep that, that uh, idea alive that we would focus on crime uh, and uh, its causes and uh, what's happening with crime at least once a year. And out of that lunch was born the Guggenheim Symposium. So we thank uh, Harry Frank Guggenheim, we thank uh, Joel Wallman, we thank Josiah Bunting, who I gather is coming later, the president of the foundation, and some of the trustees uh, who are here today. Uh, without their support, uh, this would not happen. So it's, when you, when you do this sort of thing seven years in a row, uh, reasonable question to ask is, uh, what sort of impact uh, do you think the Guggenheim Symposium is having? And uh, Steve and uh, his team and Kara and others spend a fair amount of time thinking about that question and uh, trying to trace the impact of this annual gathering and particularly the journalist workshops on coverage uh, of these issues uh, in America. And uh, one metric that uh, springs to mind that I think is uh, worth keeping in mind uh, is that over the seven years, uh, 400 journalists uh, have come to uh, John Jay or have participated in events uh, sponsored by uh, the uh, Center of Media, Crime, and Justice. And uh, that's a wonderful statistic. When we think about our overall goal as being to bring journalists and experts together, uh, to think that we've uh, worked with that number of journalists over, over that period of time is uh, commendable. So I just want a tip of the hat uh, to Steve and his team uh, for coming up with an idea of linking journalists and, uh, and uh, experts together in this way. And the 
the uh, jewel in the crown is the annual Guggenheim uh, Symposium. Let me just say two words about John Jay. I can't pass up the opportunity to be uh, the cheerleader for my college. So here you are in our new building. Uh, we just opened this building uh, a couple months ago. Please feel free while you're here to wander uh, in that direction a little bit and you'll see a magnificent uh, a piece of architecture, I think, that links uh, our old building to, to the rest of uh, the block on between 10th and 11th Avenues. Uh, this is now the campus for uh, 15,000 students who study here, uh, undergraduates, uh, master's students, and doctoral students, 400 plus uh, full-time faculty, 600 or so adjunct faculty. Uh, and we like to think of ourselves as, a, uh, as an institution that is dedicated to a mission, and our motto is educating for justice. So our notion is that if we bring people together, uh, either in a classroom or in a symposium like this, uh, that the end result is that people are thinking more deeply about issues of justice. So in that sense, I welcome you uh, to John Jay. Let me uh, perform what is a very happy uh, task that I've been assigned, which is to introduce uh, our keynote speaker. Um, sometimes you get a sense and maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong, that the world is changing uh, in important ways. And in thinking about the changes underway in the world of criminal justice, uh, I thought this morning about uh, two journalistic pieces, since we're sp speaking to journalists, that have appeared recently that signal to me that the, there's a change underway in the American approach to crime, uh, and particularly uh, uh, violence and particularly our sentencing policy. And the first is a, uh, an article that, uh, if you haven't read it, I commend it to you that appeared in the January 31st uh, issue of The New Yorker uh, by Adam uh, Gopnik uh, called The Caging of America. Uh, it's, a, it's a rumination on the state of uh, imprisonment in America and uh, it starts with a provocative, I think intentionally provocative, uh, uh, observation that there are uh, six million people under some form of correctional supervision uh, in America says that's the size of Stalin's gulag. So that, that gets you thinking, uh, but it's a, it's a deep piece and I would commend it to your attention uh, and really ask sort of how is this level of incarceration consistent with or inconsistent with our, with our values as a country. The other piece I would commend to you that is in the most recent issue of Governing Magazine is a piece that uh, points out what to some of us is just this remarkable sort of head-shaking fact, which is that Texas has become the go-to place to talk about reducing levels of incarceration. How did this happen? Uh, and it's true, and it has this wonderful example. Uh, our friends Charlie Beck and others from California will, will understand the political reality of people from California flying to Texas to try to understand how to reduce the prison population and coming back, unfortunately, and saying that they couldn't quite do it. Uh, but that Texas is now this beacon of light in our country about uh, a, a, a political consensus that we, they, need to reduce the level of incarceration. And then the article goes on to talk not only about Texas, but also about the introduction of gaming theory uh, into ways we think about crime control. Highlights the work, uh, I'm proud to say, of our professor, David Kennedy, uh, who I think is revolutionizing the way we think about, uh, about crime in America, and the work of the UCLA professor, Mark Kleiman, who's the author of now called Project Hope in, in uh, Hawaii and now uh, California, which is just, both of these initiatives are just, are just the, ga the game changers uh, in our field. So the Gopnik piece says we have a big issue here in terms of the use of incarceration. The governing magazine piece says that there's something 
important happening in the governance of these issues. And that leads me to an introduction of our keynote speaker. The action now is at the governor's level. And that's a very interesting uh, observation. If you look around the country, you see the governors, in part for f because of the fiscal crisis, but I think also motivated in large part because they want to do things differently, are taking the bull by the proverbial horns and trying to think about sentencing policy uh, quite differently, trying to think about the approach to crime quite differently. So in thinking about whom to invite uh, to be our keynote speaker, uh, Steve and I talked about uh, sort of who's, who's in our backyard that might uh, be somebody who would get this conference off to a good start. We thought about Governor Dan Malloy from Connecticut. We in New York, of course, like to think that he learned everything he knows by being a prosecutor in Brooklyn. Uh, he was an ADA in the Kings County DA's office for, uh, I think, four years. Um, very good uh, conviction record. Uh, I think the number's like 22 out of 23 felony trials. That's not bad. I won't ask about the 23rd. Uh, four of them for homicide. So has, has seen these issues up close and uh, in, a, in a contentious setting. Uh, difficult county, uh, but a very, uh, very highly uh, thought of DA's office. Uh, uh, Governor Malloy then uh, left uh, to go back to Stanford, uh, where he uh, got uh, involved in uh, civic affairs, uh, ran for mayor, and uh, served for mayor for uh, 14 years, bringing that city to um, uh, out of uh, a state of uh, disrepair to uh, the point where it's one of the most uh, livable, called one of the most livable cities uh, in America. Uh, then ran for governor, uh, and has been governor since 2010. Uh, so here in New York, we have this interesting uh, sort of tri-state thing going on between Cuomo here, Malloy there, Christie across the river. Some interesting uh, elected officials doing a, a very uh, important uh, public work. Uh, and what we're particularly pleased to note is that uh, Governor Malloy and his uh, Secretary for Public Safety, uh, Mike Lawler, former uh, very uh, influential state senator on crime policy issues, are doing some very deep thinking about uh, crime policy. And uh, I'm very pleased to note that they're working with, uh, with us and with Yale Law School on an anti-violence initiative centered on the work of uh, professors David Kennedy and, and uh, Tracy Mears. So uh, we're delighted uh, that Governor uh, Malloy has come to Don Jay and uh, will get us thinking, get us started, and get us off to uh, a rousing beginning. So please join me in welcoming Governor Danielle Malloy. When I uh, uh, get asked about the 23rd case, uh, the one that I, I didn't get a conviction in, uh, when someone asks that question in the audience, I always say, you know, you look very familiar. <laughs> hey, listen, it's great, to, it's great to be with everybody. I'm going to put some notes here and move this a little bit. Um, um, it's great to be with everybody. Actually, I, I see in the audience somebody I was a prosecutor with way back in 1980 in, in Brooklyn. I also see somebody in the audience who I went to high school with, and so uh, uh, you can go home again. Uh, it's great to be back in, in New York to talk about this important issue. Um, and uh, I was asked to leave time for questions, which is a great out for me because uh, I'd rather handle some questions um, if that's uh, okay, but I, I do have a number of things to say. Uh, number one, what drives me in the arena of um, criminal justice um, are really lessons that I learned uh, beginning uh, in the summer of 1980. Uh, and that is the following. 
um, that uh, uh, moving to Brooklyn, seeing what was going on, and understanding um, that we actually didn't have much of a policy uh, in criminal justice, except largely to protect um, a, a white population, uh, which was uh, a way of saying that if uh, uh, black and Latino populations um, had been treated the same way as white populations in communities such as New York City, um, uh, we would have had a lot lower crime rate. Or, put it another way, uh, if white communities had been subjected to the levels of, of violence um, uh, and disrepair in their communities, um, uh, we would have changed our criminal uh, justice policy a lot sooner. Um, and I do very much view uh, our attitude in the United States about criminal justice, particularly in, in um, uh, urban areas, as being quite, uh, quite discriminatory, um, or at least uh, quite willing uh, to ignore the long-term implications uh, of our approach to criminal justice on uh, black and Latino communities, uh, communities of poverty uh, in this country. Um, and so we've got to do something about it. And, and luckily, uh, I'm in a position now uh, to do something about it. I tried and did some things, I think, in Stanford pretty well. We lowered crime by 67%, uh, and we made communities that previously had not been safe, uh, safe again. Um, uh, and actually had been ranked uh, most of the time that I was, actually, I, I, I served for 14 years. So for 10 of those years, we were frequently uh, one of the uh, 10 safest cities uh, in the United States. And that's in a community that has a lot more diversity than you might imagine sitting here if you don't know Stanford particularly well. Um, so uh, I get to be governor of the state of Connecticut. I hire somebody uh, very uh, bright, uh, Mike Lawler, who um, uh, had been a leader in our own state uh, government in the legislature, but also nationally uh, on these issues. And I empower him uh, to get the job done. Um, and he uh, brings issues to me, and we talk about them, and, and we've made some very significant uh, changes. So let's start talking about how Connecticut is different today um, than it was uh, uh, just a year uh, ago. Um, uh, first of all, we, we, this 2011 was our safest, uh, least amount of crime, however you want to put it, in 44 years. Um, uh, and we experienced about 11% drop um, uh, in arrests during that period of time. Uh, and over the last few years, uh, the uh, amount of recidivism uh, including, in, in particularly in, in 2011, um, has begun to decrease rather rapidly. Um, and we did some other important things, including taking on uh, the issue of uh, identification um, and uh, uh, setting in place some rules uh, to be uh, uh, worked on um, uh, in the uh, prosecutorial arena uh, to make sure that uh, we're doing a better job um, and that, that uh, uh, those practices are being regulated to a greater degree including doing something that I did back in 1980 in Brooklyn, and that is to tape record, or to, to record um, uh, statements of, of uh, um, people who were accused of crimes. Um, in, in Connecticut, that was not done on a routine basis. Um, we also did some other things that I think are, are very important, perhaps uh, in, with respect to our um, incarcerated population. We've adopted uh, systems modeled on Ohio and Kansas and Texas and other states. Uh, to begin uh, giving credit for uh, uh, time well spent uh, in prison. Um, so uh, formally, until this past year, Connecticut was not uh, one of the states uh, that gave credit for uh, getting your GED or maintaining a job 
uh, or uh, living within the rules. Um, so really, we send people to prison with no hope uh, uh, and no system of changing their behaviors. Um, and so we basically made a break with that as well this year. And then I think also what we did this year, which uh, really does go back again to my experience in, in Brooklyn as a, as a prosecutor, um, is that we de decriminalized small amounts of, of marijuana. Um, um, and that had not been done in our state, and it was very controversial. In fact, and it's, it's amazing how controversial it was, it was a tie vote in the Senate, and my lieutenant governor uh, had to break the tie. Um, the only time that she had to do that on any vote uh, uh, this past year. Um, but interestingly enough, uh, people move on rather rapidly, uh, including uh, most of the police departments, and have adjusted to that. Um, and, um, and you might ask, well, why, did, why was that so important to me? Well, I, I, I want to go back to this race issue, if I can, for a moment. It, it's very clear in my mind that there are disparate outcomes um, based on, on race uh, in our judicial system. Um, and, um, um, and, and clearly one of the areas uh, where that was uh, impacting is on um, marijuana arrests. Uh, if you were black or Latino, you were far more likely to end up with a conviction uh, out of the box. Um, a lot of pressures were brought to bear. Um, and prosecutors, by the way, were also um, uh, taking advantage of some statutes. Um, uh, for instance, if you're in a within a certain number of feet of a school or other buildings, um, uh, the penalty goes up rather uh, rapidly, uh, which is a threat hanging over someone's head, so that if you don't take the plea, that leads to a conviction. Then you, uh, um, uh, then you end up potentially going to trial with a much more severe uh, penalty um, outstanding than, than would have been the case uh, uh, otherwise. And that has a particular, um, I think, egregious effect in, in some of our communities in the, in the state, like New Haven uh, or Hartford, where literally you would, have, you would struggle to find uh, a, pop, a, a piece of land um, that is not within one of the preferential zones when it, when it comes to uh, sentencing or charging. Um, and uh, I, I don't think that that rule was set up with the intention of having disparate uh, racial uh, impact, but it has disparate racial impact nonetheless. Um, and so we finally did something about that in the uh, state of uh, Connecticut. Now, let, let me give you some numbers. Um, in 1986, uh, we had about 6,000 people uh, in our, uh, incarcerated in our system. Um, and by 2008, that had grown almost to 20,000 people. It was a one-size-fits-all approach to criminal justice. If we get you, we're going to put you away, and we're going to hold you for a series of years um, uh, in which we hope, um, uh, although we didn't have a system to encourage, in which we hope you're going to decide to change your, your behaviors. Um, and so we're going in a different direction. So. Uh, in the last few years, we've lessened uh, the population by about 3,000. We've closed three jails. We've modernized our approach to encourage good behaviors. We're examining, self-examining ourselves with respect to racial uh, disparities. Um, we are doing other things. Uh, in the coming, actually on Wednesday, I'll uh, announce, uh, I'll give my state of the state address to the legislature, something that the two other governors mentioned in the tri-state area have, have already done. Um, we're going to speak very plainly about the necessity of reforming education um, on a pre-K through 12 through 20 um, uh, system, uh, in part because I certainly have an understanding uh, that a educational system in urban areas uh, that is failing anywhere from 40 to 60% of the students who, that enter that system 
um, is going to be a system that also uh, produces crime and long-term damage um, and uh, holds back the ability of uh, our urban communities to make the kind of progress that they need to make. In fact, I want to go a step further. You can very clearly link criminal justice policy, education policy, housing policy, and economic development policy. And quite frankly, when you put them all you know, on a piece of, uh, on a top of a table, you're going to have a hard time um, saying that any one of those isn't as important um, as any uh, other uh, in doing what we need to do. And that is uh, to raise up a population of people who are safe, who are not committing crimes, who are well-educated, and can par participate in a democracy as well as hold down a job. Uh, and so what I would say to you quite clearly is what we're prepared to do in Connecticut is think of all of those issues uh, as interrelated. So for instance, um, this past uh, week, I announced that we'll go back up to something approaching $120 million in a small state, three and a half million people, um, um, to, to develop additional uh, housing opportunities. Now understand that in three years uh, of the 16 years uh, that we had Republican governors, we actually spent nothing to develop housing, affordable housing. Um, and uh, the last time we spent this much money was 1991. And, uh, and we did that even though we had to wrestle with the largest per capita deficit in the nation. Um, when it comes to education, we're going to go very far in reforming that system and holding uh, low-performing schools and low-performing districts uh, to a much higher standard than they've been held before and give incentives uh, for good behaviors in the sense of, uh, for those, those districts because we and give them additional tools uh, to overcome what has been a miserable, miserable record uh, in some of our uh, urban areas with respect to uh, education. With respect to job growth and, and production, listen, this is a economic imperative. Put it this way. Uh, as rapidly as Connecticut is aging, and it's one of the more rapidly aging states in the nation, um, we uh, have failed to well-educate large portions of our urban population to the, point, to the point that they're not eligible for jobs. They don't have a skill set. Now, we're the, one of the most rapidly aging workforces. Put it this way, if we better educated all of the people who are currently in our pre-K through 12 system and the next five or six years of population coming into that system, because of our demographics, we could guarantee full employment. Think about it. All we have to do is produce a better product. And that product will, in fact, uh, have a job in our state. Uh, and we're failing to do that. So we're going to be very hard on, on, on that issue uh, as, we, um, um, uh, as we push, obviously, on the criminal justice side. So now let me share with you uh, an experience I've had as, as governor in the last uh, couple of months. Uh, I've recently interviewed a bunch of folks to, to, who are seeking to become judges. Um, and uh, in making my appointments, uh, I've, I've already stated that, that I want to see more women uh, and more minorities uh, serve on the bench uh, in Connecticut where uh, both groups are underrepresented. Or to put it another way, when you walk into court, you don't necessarily see yourself sitting on the bench. But I had this opportunity to recently interview a bunch of candidates, and six of them I appointed. And this is the point I made to them. And I think this is probably a good audience to share that with. During the course of the uh, uh, interviews, I would eventually get to the point 
Um, and, and I'd say, I have one thing to ask of you. And they'd all say, what is that, Governor? And of course, I know they're going to agree with me, um, uh, uh, at least to my face. Um, but I make the point as follows. If you're going to be a judge in the Connecticut system, I want you to remember how difficult it is for the person who's appearing before you, particularly in a criminal justice setting, but quite frankly in other settings as well. These folks are not as well educated as you. They're nervous about the system. The system is somewhat uh, feeds, feeds itself. Um, it's a, a relatively closed uh, a group of people that are making most of the decisions in the system. They're all comfortable with one another. Um, they all have the potential of exercising a lot of influence on any other member, uh, a prosecutor on a judge, a probation officer on a prosecutor. Uh, you could go through any of those links. I said, just remember uh, to keep an eye out for that person who's on the other side of the table. And think about what you would do if you were in their shoes and make sure that their rights are being protected and make sure that they're being respected and being treated with dignity, regardless of their race, regardless of, of their economic standing. Uh, be an advocate, at least in the back of your mind, for making sure that justice actually is done. That's what we've asked. That's what we asked those, those six appointees. That's what I'm going to ask every judge. That's what I talk about everywhere I go when it comes to criminal justice. These disparate impacts, for instance, in that, eight, in that almost 20,000 people who were incarcerated in Connecticut, 78% of them were black and Latino. Of the 50,000, once 60,000 people on probation, overwhelmingly, they're black and Latino. Overwhelmingly, the, one, the, the biggest reason people are incarcerated in our system today is violations of parole for relatively minor events. So we've got to do a better job in making sure that we understand uh, the societal pressures, the economic pressures, the behavioral pressures uh, that are applied to people, and we've got to come up with better strategies for dealing with that, and that's what we're trying to do. So on the juvenile front, we decided that we were going to stop being one of three states that treated 16-year-olds as adults, um, already talked about small amounts of marijuana, already talked about our other approaches to criminal justice. So I think uh, as a relatively small state here in the Northeast, we're catching up to where we should have been a long time ago. Um, and, and I'm proud of, of that. And I'm proud to have assembled a team uh, in, in, in this room uh, that's working on all of uh, these issues as we go forward. So with that as a, uh, a kind of a, an understanding and a base uh, I'd like to take some questions, which is what I was asked to do. Thank you, Governor. So the floor is open. Just raise your hand, and I think there'll be a, can we get a microphone? Or the one microphone to go around? Uh, Give a shout out. Go ahead. Oh, yes, yes, go ahead. Good morning. My name is Kenny Jackson, and I'm here with Fred Hodges. I'm a director of a, a mentoring program for family reentry. He's assistant director. Um, and well, we're who's, both, my, who's mine in the store? We're, we're, both we're, we're, we're both. We're, right. we're both ex-offenders, ex right. okay? And we're just living examples of it. We're given an opportunity of what can happen. And as far as crime going down, it's not just a police issue, because in Bridgeport, they've given us an opportunity and a platform as ex-offenders who turn our life around to be into the schools. And I noticed that you're going after the two E's I call, employment and education. And I know that if you put an ex-offender to work in a sustainable, with a sustainable wage, they will produce. 
I brought five or six ex-offenders and, and I paid them a stipend into one of our at-risk schools. Because we get the we, question. And we got rave reviews. So now, in moving forward, yep. uh, in addressing the school-to-prison pipeline, which is a new buzzword, uh, will you be, your administration be looking to uh, bring ex-offenders to the table uh, to help talk about the solutionary track? Because we have a lot of solutions to these issues. If the answer is yes, we, we need to be talking to everybody, uh, including having the perspective of, of ex-offenders. Listen, I, I've had any number of conversations myself with ex-offenders. Most, most ex-offenders wish they weren't, right? Uh, and they're pretty good about uh, telling you some of the reasons that, that, that they had their own uh, troubles. Uh, not the least of which uh, uh, is uh, uh, what we're now understanding, and that is that exposure to trauma uh, for young children um, actually does lead to lifetime changes and differences. Um, and so I think we're going to get a lot better at treating trauma uh, amongst uh, young people um, um, in, in appropriate uh, clinical settings uh, that perhaps will undo some of that damage um, as well. But, but they'll tell you. Um, and, and so let me share this with you. And, and everyone in this room has heard this, that, that uh, uh, states are looking to reading scores on third grade proficiency as a way to predict what their uh, population, uh, prison population, is going to be um, uh, uh, you know, approximately 15 years later. Um, I actually, uh, that's an interesting uh, uh, fact, um, and it's one that actually tells us what to do. Concentrate on, on acquisition of reading and math skills uh, by the end of third grade, and you're going to lower uh, uh, the number of people committing crimes. I mean, there's, there is this reality in all of our lives. We do not perform well when we're frustrated. So imagine telling someone that they're going to underperform for the rest of their life. They're going to be frustrated by that underperformance. And by the way, we want you to live within all the other rules. Doesn't make sense. It is interrelated. We've got to do a better job. Um, and in point of fact, where we're doing a better job, you end up with lower crime. So these things are, are related. We will continue to talk to ex-offenders. Sure. Mike Carter, I'm a reporter uh, from the Seattle Times and a fellow here. Um, I want to talk to you about marijuana. The decriminalization, you said it was controversial. Have you heard from the U.S. Attorney's Office about this and the direction that feds are going to take in this? Uh, it's an issue, Washington State, Oregon, Colorado, one of these three or four states is going to uh, legalize marijuana soon. And uh, the federal reaction to it's going to be kind of a mystery. We have had a lot of saber rattling, but we're not sure what's going to happen. Have you heard from? Yeah, I had the opportunity to have a discussion uh, with uh, uh, folks from the federal government about our, our change. I, I don't think they're promoting of it, um, um, and I and I think you'll have you know quite a fight if you if you move in the direction of legalizing. Um, uh, we didn't legalize. Um, uh, we decided uh, that we would do. What, you know, and basically treat it like we treat other um, similar offenses. So, you know, very few kids who get caught with a beer end up with a uh, conviction for anything. But we understood that a sizable number of, of uh, folks, particularly if they were black or Latino, um, ended up with, with fairly heavy strikes against them right out of the box. Um, and um, so all we're saying is let's reset that clock a little bit and, uh, and, and uh, make sure that, that we're not uh, 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 
over penalizing folks and, and sending them down the wrong road. Now, I don't want to give um, um, credence to the idea that we should be encouraging or making it easier for people. I'm not, a, I'm not a legalized guy. I'm not a sell for consumption guy. I'm simply saying that, that we had overreacted um, uh, with respect to small amounts of marijuana uh, for folks who were otherwise not engaged in illegal behaviors. Uh, good morning. My name is Rob Bowen, Interrelated Assessments and Resolutions, Connecting the Dots. First of all, congratulations, uh, Steve, and everyone for the seventh year. I was really impressed with what you had to say, Governor. I, I wish you the most success in what you're doing. In terms of education, have you considered culturally relevant curricula? One of the things that's never been tried is to talk to the students and about education where they can see themselves in the educational module. This is a European-centered educational model, and oftentimes the, the, uh, the majority, which are the black and Latino in many of the urban centers, do not see themselves in that educational system. One quick example, uh, Eric Foner, a historian, has said, we live in the realm of the 14th, I mean, yeah, the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment is on the backs of who are called uh, slaves, but black Americans, African-American citizens. And the benefit of the Constitution actually is because of African-Americans. And all the negligible parts of the Constitution is before or, or was against the African-Americans. So I'm just using that as a, a yeah, let me, small let me example. Let me, let me answer that. We know what works in education. Um, uh, and uh, we have lots of models that work. Um, and certainly making education more relevant to the student uh, culturally uh, is, is an important step to take. So, yeah, I think we need, we need to do that. We also just need simply to apply the lessons that we already have learned about what, what works. And I, and I think charter schools have demonstrated that. I think uh, inter-district magnet schools in our own state have, have indicated that. I think some of, the, uh, some of the systems with more assets have, have uh, 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 moved to better uh, but slightly more expensive models. And systems that aren't as well off have, have failed to do that. That's a reality. So we've got to address that, and we will address it uh, in, in our uh, education package. Um, so what we're going to do in Connecticut is concentrate on the 30 districts that, that we see this disparity in. Uh, by the way, we have one of the largest, if not the largest, achievement gap in the nation in Connecticut. And I know that by concentrating on 30 districts and making marginal progress will actually make a large amount of progress with respect to the size of, of that gap. And of course, this is going to take some number of years to, to rectify. But culturally relevant education certainly should be incorporated. I'm Brian Zimhagen with WNYC Radio. I wonder if we could get a comment owner on East Haven on the uh, civil rights case. Is there anything more that you'd like to see happen beyond the, uh, the announcement about the retirement there? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, uh, when I was uh, mayor of Stanford, and I think this goes back to 1998 or 1999 on Martin Luther, King's uh, uh, birthday or the, uh, the day set aside to honor Martin Luther King, um, we, uh, a, a guy who's now the chief in, in New Haven, uh, Dean Esserman and I, um, uh, met with the community and signed off on a, uh, on a policy that, that, that uh, made sure that our police department would not engage in the behaviors that apparently the East Haven uh, department did. I, I don't think there's any excuse for that behavior. Um, and um, as a result, uh, Mike Lawler, who's here with me today, has been charged with making sure um, that uh, my state is compliant with its own laws in gathering that information, uh, something which, quite frankly, I was unaware that, 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 that they weren't uh, uh, 
they were failing to do that, and that they had actually failed to go after federal dollars that would have paid for doing that. So we're going to hold people to a much higher standard, and as a Connecticut resident, I'm embarrassed. That's what I would say. And I think most Connecticut residents are embarrassed, and that's a good thing, because it doesn't happen, at least not in that way, in most of our communities. Although, you know, I suspect with respect to some types of stops, it may be going probably not as well advertised as these days. Thank you. I'm Brandi Grissom with the Texas Tribune. I just wanted to talk with you a little bit about mental health. That's an issue that's huge in our criminal justice system. The Harris County Jail in Houston is the largest mental health care provider in our state right now. So I wanted to talk with you just a little bit about some of the approaches you're taking to deal with mental health, both on the front end and sort of in the back end when people do get into prison. Sure. You know, I apologize that I didn't talk about it. There is no doubt that a large portion of our incarcerated population, and I referenced trauma as one of the factors, but no doubt that a large part of our population has disabilities related to functioning, mental functioning. In fact, let's be honest, if you did a survey, you would find folks with mental disabilities and addictions, which, by the way, are the same thing, drive a very large portion of your population. And that's true whether it's nonviolent or violent behaviors that we're talking about. So clearly we've got to do a better job of reaching out and intervening in first, second, and third arrests to help resolve some of the mental health issues. And I think that that's something that will save all of the states a lot of money if we are more intensive around that issue. So let me use, I talked about the housing as a related issue. The best housing right now for folks, and we're showing this, demonstrating this success in Stanford at a particular new housing complex that we built, is housing that has services built in. You know, all of a sudden if someone's reminding you to take your medication as you walk out the door in the morning, it has an impact. If someone's linking you to treatment options, it has an impact. You know, that's a reality. So we've got to break down our approach to housing, particularly with respect to folks who may have been incarcerated and or may have mental health issues. And I think if we do that, we're going to have very, very good results. And so I think we've got to spend more money in that area. We've got to identify more money to be spent in that area. We have to raise up folks within all portions of the criminal justice system to be more aware of that. And we've got to hit the point time and time and time again. Now listen, you know, if we could deal with mental illness and we could suddenly take 16-year-olds and make them 24, we'd be okay. Right? I mean, you know, think about it. The number of people who are incarcerated having to do with mental illness are coming into the system between the ages of 16 or 15 and 24 is quite remarkable. So we need to really design our approach to criminal justice to be more intensive around those issues. 
immaturity and, and mental health. Sure. Frank Stoltz with the NPR affiliate in Los Angeles. I, I was just writing here, uh, I'm kind of bored with the solutions uh, because we've talked about these kinds of solutions for a long time. There's, but the political barriers uh, in, in a lot of states seem overwhelming. Uh, talk about the political challenges of selling this approach uh, and, and how you see meeting those challenges or overcoming them. Well, you know, it's, it's a great question. Um, uh, for instance, Connecticut, as I, as I told you, was one of uh, just a very few states that, that was, did not have a, uh, a system in place to encourage good behaviors while you're incarcerated by rewarding those good behaviors. Um, uh, and I can assure you that I happen to be a Democrat, and, and a bunch of Republicans attacked me as being soft on, on crime. My, my best defense was what, you know, other uh, Republican states had already done in this regard and uh, the success they were having in lowering recidivism uh, rates, uh, and by the way, the, the amount of money that they were saving. Uh, there is a political leader of the other party in the, in the state who gets information on a regular basis about who we're letting out, because quite frankly, he can't wait uh, to point out when one of those individuals uh, commits a crime, right? And, and I know that. Uh, but I also know that, that people who are released um, uh, at the end of their sentences, particularly if they're released at the end of their sentences and have, uh, have matured in a system that didn't reward positive behaviors, they're, they're going to c commit crimes as well. So yeah, it is, it is a political conflict. And, and by the way, um, go back to my opening, uh, you know, clearly uh, we moved in a direction uh, to incarcerate a lot more people uh, when in the, in the early 1980s uh, we saw a crime uh, jumping over from black and Latino communities to white communities. That's what happened. Um, and uh, it drove our policy for, for a long period of time. Um, now it's time to, to, to kind of take a look at the successes that we had, uh, as well as the weaknesses that were built into that system. And I think in examining those weaknesses, we can overcome the political blockage. It makes sense. And I think the pressure financially that so many states are under um, uh, uh, argues well uh, for a lot of the new approaches that are being uh, taken. Intervention, um, um, serious, sustained intervention um, um, is going to be the, the best tool to keeping people out of jail. Uh, and intervention while people are in jail to deal with issues like mental health and addiction uh, are going to lower the recidivism rate. Um, and uh, uh, so I think, I think there's a very powerful uh, political argument and economic argument, and I suspect that that's why more states are moving uh, in the directions of, that all of us would like to see uh, our states moving. Thank you. Thank you very much.